At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It might have snowed on multiple days in the past week, but we have 80 degrees in the forecast finally. We're here about a different kind of sunshine, though, on This Week in the CLE, the weekday podcast to put you fresh light on the latest news. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn with colleagues Laura Johnston and Chris Warnowski. Time to finally put away the coats and hats. I really hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I had to get them out last Friday. We had a car parade. It was 36 degrees. I had the scarf and the hat. So hopefully they're back away for good. It's May the 13th, man. It's really time not to have any more snow. Okay, let's get started. Why has Ohio Governor Mike DeWine stopped providing a lot of substantial substance in his daily briefings. We uh, have been following these things for a couple of months now, and for the first six weeks or so, they were loaded with information, and when reporters asked him questions, if he didn't know the answers, they often got them by the end of that briefing. Now, people are asking questions. We're getting a lot of, yeah, I don't know, and a lot of words with no meaning. We're starting to hear this from people in the public who want some substance Yesterday's nursing home discussion was a good example. So what's going on? Why have these things become so unfulfilling? This is Laura Johnson. This is a really good question that I think a lot of people would answer, would like answered. And we get a lot of these questions from people writing us and saying, please ask about my issue. But at the beginning, I felt like news was coming out left and right. Like they'd answer a question about, you know, my favorite topic, when summer can start, right? And that would be a story. And we'd get stories out of the questions. Now it just seems like they keep batting them away saying, well, that's that's a really good question. We're going to look into that. I mean, they're well, not outright denying answers. They just don't have them. No, but uh, look, an example came last week. People who are getting ready for vacation season want to know when the quarantine requirement, if you go out of state and come back, ends. And so Laura Hancock, our reporter, asked that, and he said, yeah, you know what? I owe you an answer on that. I haven't thought about that. It's a week later. We still don't hear anything. We've asked no end of, you know, we asked the other day, Amy Acton, why is Franklin County having so much big, bigger pocket of cases than Cuyahoga when Cuyahoga started? Yeah, I, I don't know. You'd have to check with them. I mean, it's just, that, that's not a fulfilling answer. If If suddenly Franklin County has a thousand more cases than Cuyahoga County, You would think that the Ohio health director would be on top of that, but we're getting nothing. I mean, it's we ask the questions and we get no answers. You know, there's a guy who owns a tennis club in Cuyahoga County that really wants us to ask that question. But I don't know if I want to ask that question because they're going to say, huh, that's a good question. We haven't thought about that. Whatever question you ask, that might be the answer. I don't feel like we any of our questions have gotten like really pointed answers. So it's like, okay, let's ask anything. Are they just tired? 
I don't know. Some of the questions have been like, Mike DeWine, are you going to go out for dinner once the restaurant's Well, reopen? some of the questions are really stupid. But I, but many of the reporters are asking the questions we keep at. You know, unemployment is still screwed up. When are you going to fix it? When are you going to get this daycare problem solved? And look, we talked about this. It's a really complicated problem, and I respect that they're trying to get it right. But, but it's still questions asked. No answers. It's just it's it's kind of a painful exercise now. So this is Chris Wernowski. One of the things that I'm wondering is going on here is is this as this process has you know gone on longer and longer, they've delegated a lot of things to these working groups and these other agencies, and where in in the beginning of it, it felt like they were per, they had their fingers in everything. And so, I mean, and again, this is a speculative answer to this question, but, you know, I mean, maybe maybe they're removed from the the day-to-day part of it, but that still doesn't, I mean, if you're going to go in front of people every single day for an hour and a half and talk about it, you would think that you would do the work and try to figure out or at least anticipate what people are going to ask. It, it just, you know, I mean, I... I I'm always a person willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. But in, in, in this case, it just seems it's not it's like they're not doing the prep work or come back the next day and say, you know, we had four questions yesterday. We didn't have answers to her. The answers. Well, look, you mentioned I, the working groups, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we've got records requests and we're pounding on the door trying to get that stuff because there's a bunch of them out there. They they could at least come back and say, OK, we have the report. Yes. You know, yesterday, the art museum and the uh, Rock Hall announced they're going to open and their work group report is in. Well, that was, you know, that was news. Right. Oh, really? Your work group report is in? What does it say? And DeWine could come in and say, look, we've got the working group report from the museums. Here are some of their ideas. And it's substance. We're just not getting the substance. So I'm, I, you know, I've been giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm kind of like you, but, but I can tell you our audience has stopped giving them the benefit of the doubt. They want some actual answers on this stuff and not this, wasted hour and a half of no information and what they're doing now is bringing in other people to blather you know a week and a half ago they had the prison director get on and talk about what a great job they're doing when they're not doing a great job it kind of had the way to go brownie feel of it didn't it just a (laughs) little bit a little bit and since jane cahoon our politics editor isn't here this you know maybe she could answer this question but are are they availing themselves to reporters when they need follow-up stuff i mean can so can laura hancock you know, contact Dan Tierney and get answers from Dan Tierney? Yeah, I mean, I, is, that, is that becoming a... I talked to Laura about this about a week ago, a little more than a week ago, and she said, yes. Her her feeling was they are not trying to block reporters from getting information, but they're overwhelmed by requests. So that's a limited thing. Dan Tierney, according to Laura, is doing the best he possibly can to, to provide answers to follow-up questions, but but it's we're not getting that. And I I don't know. I just, the briefings in the beginning were a great way to show a calm demeanor to the state and show that the governor and Amy Acton and the Lieutenant governor are on top of this. And they disseminated a great deal of useful information, man, we were doing six and seven stories out of those things. And now this has changed over the last week and a half, two weeks. They're pretty much useless unless he does make an announcement about I'm opening restaurants and then, you know, it's five minutes of useful information, videos, and then a lot of questions we ask and we don't get answers. <laughs> it's like, what a waste of time. Okay. Well, onward. It's this week in the CLE.
When will Ohio massage and tattoo businesses open? It's amazing how many people kept asking us about the tattoo parlors. It was one of the questions that came back every day. Either there are a whole lot of people that care about this or they are one vocal business. Laura Johnston, we finally know. Right. This was actual news dropped into the Statehouse News Briefing yesterday, and he said it really quick. It was actually from Lieutenant Governor John Husted. He said that tattoo and massage businesses can open on Friday. That is the same day that hair and nail salons and barbershops can open. And they were part of the same personal services working group. They just had an extra hurdle to go through with a medical board. With all of the businesses in that classification, They actually are way ahead of the curve in terms of required sanitation. I mean, tattoo parlors really have to jump through hoops to keep you from getting, you know, disease that can wreck your liver. And, and, you know, when you go to the barbershop, you see they sterilize the instruments all the time. And so it's, it was odd that this is one of the ones that had the biggest hurdles because these are the people that kind of get it. I mean, they've been keeping us safe for a long time. Right. I think that was their argument. And we did have a couple of stories. I think Troy Smith wrote them um, that the people were complaining, saying, look, we follow the rules. We just want to open. These are needed services. And so there are a list of guidelines that Ohio has posted. That means employees need to wear face masks. They have to assess their symptoms daily. They have to wash their hands in between clients, which I'm fairly certain they were doing before. Um, They maintain appointment and walk-in records. Think about that because you have to know who came into your your place of business in case they have to do contact tracing and a whole list of of guidelines that they will be required to follow. Is is this is Chris Warnowski. Do, do either of you have tattoos? I no. do not. All right, so I have a small one and and I got it a couple of years ago uh, after I moved here and a friend of mine actually works at one of the better tattoo parlors here in Ohio City and and I am amazed like if you go into a really well-run tattoo shop it is a very sterile very clean environment and you know it's it's not a place where people come in and browse and and it's not you know you come in you do your appointment you sit down and really there's not a lot of people in there their workstations are really spaced out they're divided and and it's pretty much the same at most shops so as as weird and absurd as this seems, and you know, I mean, it's like, all right, who needs a tattoo in you know times of you know global plague? But but it Maybe is that's the tattoo they're going to get, <laughs> right? I mean, the coronavirus tattoo. Right, but Chris, you make a good point though. They could have stayed open. They, there was no danger of spread be- yeah, I mean, from them. If you look at like, I mean, watching watching my buddy open like all of the 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 sterile equipment that, I mean, they, they, you know, they don't, they don't reuse anything. You know, they, they had, I mean, it was, it was really fascinating. I mean, I think the only thing that will change is that they'll probably end up wearing masks, you know, when they're doing their work and which, which they would have been willing to do starting in March. Look, there was frustration there because they knew they were safe. It's like, there's a guy I keep hearing from that runs a tennis club and he's saying, we're the definition of social distancing. Nobody gets anywhere close to each other. Why did I have to close? And I think there are a number of businesses out there that, and, and you say, right, it's in a time of global plague. Why do we care? Well, it's all part of the economy. If, if the tennis club stays open, the people who work there have jobs. If the tattoo parlors are open, they have jobs. And it seems like we were a little bit slow on the uptake here about trying to get these smaller businesses back going when they all contribute to the greater economy.
So it's it's nice to see they're open, but it does raise questions about why they had to stay closed for two months. Well, some of them don't have powerful lobbies and, you know, people who are, you know, as connected as, you know, some of the businesses that might be, uh, you know, opening their doors this week and next week. Good point. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. Why doesn't a cloth mask protect me from the coronavirus? This is one of those things that we've been hearing over and over again. Wear the mask. It doesn't save you. It saves the people around you. And it raised the question, well, how does that work? What's the physics of that? If if it stops the virus from getting away from me to others, why doesn't it stop the virus coming into me from others? And it turns out there is a scientific answer to this. Chris Ranaski, our reporter, Evan McDonald went and put it together. What did he find? I, I haven't seen a lot of stories that actually put this out as, as well as this one, because it's, it's, it's a thing of debate and, and people are still like, I don't, I don't need to wear a mask. But it, the way that he sort of explained it was that wearing a mask is sort of like sneezing into a handkerchief. Like what you're doing is you're basically keeping like the biggest particles of what's in you from coming out of you. And, and that the way that you protect yourself now is that is through distance. So it's like we're the way that we keep each other and ourselves safe is sort of a true prong thing. You wear the mask. So, you know, that when you cough and when you sneeze that like the, the biggest particles don't come flying out of you and landing on other people who are, you know, within the radius of you. And, and the distance is what keeps you from getting, you know, the, the smaller particles, the things that, you know, that, that don't get captured by the mask. That's, that's sort of what keeps you safe from other people. Well, and, and what was interesting, you know, we've all seen the, the graphic depiction of how far a sneeze travels. Right. And so when you think about that, you know, his, his, the doctor, one of the experts he talked to said, the mask stops about 30% of the droplets that you mm-hmm. cough or sneeze out from going, but it also stops how far they, they travel. That, that, that makes a lot more, more sense. And, you know, the other thing, there's a video circulating now that shows uh, if you infect one person's hand with it over the course of a half hour, how, how far that can spread in a room and how many people can touch it. So the basic theory here is reduce the number of droplets that are out there. You won't, you won't get rid of them entirely, but by reducing the number you, for the community of people, you reduce the chances, but, but it's to protect others, which really means when you're out at your giant Eagle or wherever else, and people are not wearing masks, it's a sign of disrespect to you. Right. <laughs> it's like, they're like, yeah, I don't care about you, uh, you know, and you're wearing your mask to protect others. Um, I don't know how, how do you change the psychology there so that everybody well, realizes we are in this together? I mean, Amy Acton actually did bring up something very poignant about this in in yesterday's briefing and Monday's briefing where there are people who can't wear masks. Like there are people who have medical reasons or, you know, I, I, I've known people who had panic attacks and like freaked out and ripped them off and, and just like, I can't, I can't do it. And, you know, the people I'm seeing look like, you know, like perfectly held, like, like I, I'm not seeing a lot of people who aren't wearing them who probably, I, it's, it's just, I'm a little suspicious. I, I can't imagine that that many people have underlying conditions that keep them from wearing masks. And no, it's become a polarizing force. I mean, right. the, 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 the far right rejects the notion that they need to do it. And initially you thought, well, don't wear a mask. You're going to get sick. You're going to, you know, you're a fool. But actually it's not that. They're not wearing the mask and they're endangering all the rest of us who are trying to avoid getting sick. Uh, I, it just, how do you, 
how do you get it across? Well, well one of the ways you do is through stories like Evan did to explain it. Right. And this is Laura Johnston. And Amy Acton did talk about the judgment that we're going to be seeing when people find there's somebody that got infected at a restaurant or a business. And she says, we want to help. We don't want to judge. But there is some shade eye going on at these stores. And I mean, one of the ways you can change people's behavior is by, you know, it's like peer pressure. If everybody's wearing one, then maybe other people will do it as well. I don't know. Well, the stores could also be much better about about requiring masks. You get into the trouble Chris mentioned with people that have a problem with it, but uh, yeah, I feel it, like they don't want to turn away any customers, you know? Yeah, I know. But, but well, we've also heard from people that won't go to stores that don't require masks. I mean, we've yeah. heard from people that won't go to a store if it does require a mask, but anyway, it's a great story by Evan. Check it out. It has all the science about why it's good for the community. If you wear one it's this week in the CLE, Will I get kicked off of unemployment if I am too afraid to go back to work during the coronavirus pandemic? Can I get unemployment if I am self-employed? It's a question that comes up all the time. There are people that are really worried that if they go back to the workplace, they're going to get the infection. They're going to bring it home. They're going to infect vulnerable populations, their families. They really don't want to go to places that increases their risk. We all understand that. And the question keeps coming up. Will I get unemployment? We've talked about it before, and it's a really high hurdle. But there's a there's a development in this, a couple of developments on unemployment. Let's start with this one. Chris Warnowski, what's the development? So uh, Laura Hancock wrote a story yesterday uh, that says that the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services Director Kim Hall said that no benefits are being denied right now as a result of someone's decision not to return to work, uh, you know, during the pandemic. And the reason that Hall had to make this stance is kind of interesting because that, (laughs) because Vice reported on Friday that a hacker developed a code to muck up a section of the Ohio unemployment system that essentially allowed employers to narc on people who refused to come back to work because they were concerned about the coronavirus. So somebody released code that basically allowed people to submit fake information to the state website and it overwhelmed the system. And and they basically, you know, just overwhelmed it with incorrect information and it made it hard for the state to weed out legit submissions and, and to deny people benefits. So, you know, so here we are, somebody, somebody hacking to make sure that, you know, you know, people don't get bounced off of the the unemployment rolls. Well, and we talked about that last week, why the state was seeking to have employers tell them when people didn't come back. And, the, you know, the state is required to make sure people are getting unemployment uh, who deserve it. But but this was interesting. But But what's fascinating is the hack is put in. They claim they blocked it, but they also must be feeling somewhat bad about what they were doing because now they're revisiting the whole thing. So they may not, they may be more willing to allow people to get unemployment if they have safety fears, which right. is interesting. Right. Right. That, and and given how poorly this website has performed and the fact that it got hacked, they may want to reconsider their contract. <laughs> they, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they contracted with, you know, everybody that we keep hearing from who's tried this, you, I saw Randy Ludlow of the Columbus dispatch finally put his unemployment experience online. They're having nightmarish problems. I wonder how skewed 
the numbers are because people just cannot get through. I mean, your, your experience, which we've talked about was really bad, but we have other unemployment news. The, uh, the, in the past, self-employed people have generally not been allowed to get unemployment. Uh, they, this time there was supposed to be an availability to do that, but it hasn't been there. Something has changed. What's going on with that? So the federal uh, government created a program called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, and the PUA is is what it's what the acronym is. You'll see if you go on their website, and they're now they they announced yesterday that they're going to start taking uh, jobless claims from self employed workers and independent contractors who registered for the new program. And the uh, Department of Job and Family Services said Tuesday that they started emailing roughly 208,000 people who pre-registered for the program saying that they are independent contractors or self-employed. So, so you know, now the state is, is says it's going to start paying them benefits. So that's a, that's a, big, that's a big change. This is Laura Johnston. Is that like the other unemployment? It goes back to the very beginning to March? They get two months of unemployment out of this. Do we know? Uh, it says the workers seeking PUA benefits are eligible for retroactive pay dating oh. back to February February second. So wow. yeah, like 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 right at the beginning of it. So of course, and, and, and there's 39 weeks of benefits. But of course, they're not going to get it if they can't get through the system. <laughs> so you know, right. there is the kind of the roadblock. It's this week in the CLE, why is Cleveland sending its recycling collections to the landfill? This is something that Cleveland didn't announce. It was elicited by others, and there was a a city council hearing to discuss it yesterday. And there's a bit of a debate about what's going on here, it seems. One is that the value of recyclables has dropped. The other is that Clevelanders are really bad about separating it out. So, Laura Johnston, what is going on? Uh, This is a jaw dropper to me. But, yeah, the program shut down indefinitely without a word in April when the contract was up. And the city, which, by the way, is very proud of its sustainability initiatives, tried to get bids for recycling twice. The first time they got no bids at all. The second time it would have cost an extra six million dollars to recycle. So they just they just stopped. And so, the, go ahead. But one of the things that was said yesterday, I mean, they, they, you know, the Darnell Brown, one of the top people in the Frank Jackson administration, said, you know, they were getting twenty dollars a ton for recyclables at one point right. and dropped a dollar fifty. But one of the key things that came out yesterday is that like 60 some percent of Cleveland's recyclables were contaminated with other yes. trash, that they were not residents were not really separating it, which, you know, you can put that on the residents or you can put it on the city for not doing what it takes to help people understand how to separate the recyclables. So this is 68 percent of recyclable goods ended up being discarded because and into the landfill because of contamination. And I, this has been an issue for the, about the last two years, because, you know, we were all taught to look at the bottom of our plastic yogurt containers or whatever and see a number. And if it was a number, we could put it in the recycling. And I think we just trained ourselves to do it. And it's, the idea is called wish cycling. Like you wish you could recycle it because it feels so bad to throw all of this away, but you cannot recycle yogurt containers. You can't recycle the plastic wrap off anything. You can't recycle strawberry or raspberry plastic containers. I can't tell you the number of times I fish stuff out of my recycling bin that my kids or my husband have put in because they thought it could go in there. And if you're not 
I don't feel like there's been a very good education campaign. I don't know what it would take because I know the, at least the county solid waste district has been working on this, but we were just ingrained for so long to put everything in that bag. And what we don't realize is like, cause we're like, well, maybe, maybe it'll go. But if it doesn't, then you contaminate the entire lot and you're sending cardboard and paper and aluminum to the landfill. And it's, it's just a distressing problem when you know how bad the environment is that you you know we can't get this right. One of the weekly newspapers on the east side of Cuyahoga County, though, just had a story saying there's a big demand for recycled cardboard and paper. I mean, we're all getting millions of boxes now because we're all at home and ordering stuff in. In Cleveland Heights, there's a truck that makes a separate run just for the cardboard boxes, which leads me to believe that that's probably accurate, that there is a demand for this. So why can't Cleveland at least do the cardboard? It's a good question. And I, and I, you know, Cleveland hasn't had the best recycling program all along. I mean, it's, it's restaurants. We're not recycling at all that all those beer bottles, all that glass, they was, those were going in the trash. Same with the boxes that food was coming in all the time. So I think this is a question that residents really need to, we need to ask residents need to ask. I mean, you see those big cardboard dumpsters all over the place. Um, at Rocky River, we're not supposed to put ours out with our recycling. We have to take it to the Civic Center. So maybe that's the well, You should the move thing. to an east side suburb that, <laughs> that cares about the cardboard. About recycling. the environment, right. Yeah. I feel like the onus has been on residents. And really, we should do a better, better job as a government and as a region on doing this. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. What are the conditions for immigrants being held by ICE in the Morrow County Jail during the coronavirus pandemic? Chris Ranowski, we had a story yesterday that was pretty eye-opening. What did it say? So the ACLU filed a, a lawsuit basically asking to a judge to release uh, 20 detainees who have te- uh, 18 of them who have tested positive for the coronavirus who are being held at the Morrow County Jail. And one of the inmates testified in the story that Adam Faris wrote that sometimes I wake up in the morning and I can't believe I'm in America. And, you know, he basically said, like, when I go to one of the inmates said that when I go to sleep at night, I can reach out and I can touch, you know, other people like other people are in my space. And there's basically just no distancing. There's no in some nights they don't have medical staff overnight. Uh, so if people get symptomatic overnight, there's nobody there to check on them. There's just a, you know, a lot of things that haven't been done that should be done. And and these folks are saying like, look, we're being held. We're not being held here for, you know, cr- criminal things. We're being held on civil immigration issues and, and, and they're, they're pleading to sort of get out of, out of jail. So, you know, this does, they can get help, better help and, and, you know, maybe not die. There were a couple of details that kind of stood out to me. One was that they're wearing the same clothes for three and four days, which, you know, the way the coronavirus spreads, that seems like it's a bit of a danger. And the thermometers that are being used to check their temperatures were expired. And I didn't know thermometers had expiration dates, but that seems odd. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this is, I believe, I think they have the second highest number of coronavirus cases, coronavirus cases in, in, in Ohio, in any of the jails, in the county jails. And, and they have 75, 78 inmates. So by comparison, the Cuyahoga County Jail has 1,100 inmates and 52 of them have the coronavirus. In Morrow County Jail, 78 inmates, 50 of them 
have coronavirus. And then the, the 20 that are being asked to let out are, are the ones that are, are being held um, on ICE detainers, basically. These are refugees or, or people who, who tried to get into the country, you know, and are being held after they got picked up by, by immigration and custom enforcement. Well, they let Frank Russo out, and he's one of the worst criminals we've ever seen come through here. You would think the guys who are not actually convicted of anything would get the same kind of view from the uh, federal officials. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When will the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Cleveland Museum of Art reopen? We have talked incessantly on this podcast about all the things that have been canceled and closed. Yesterday, we got some good news about some things that might actually reopen that provide entertainment value. Laura Johnston, what's the word? They're both going to open in June, June 15th for the Rock Hall and June 30th for the Art Museum. They are among the first museums in the whole country to announce reopening plans. So procedures at the Rock Hall include time tickets, limited mission, temperature checks for visitors, social distancing, and the expectation that visitors will wear masks. They're going to have a one-way circulation route, route through those exhibits. And, you know, if you've been in the Rock Hall, um, it can get a little circuitous there. But um, Well, and that can't possibly work on the upper floor because there's only one staircase that goes up and down. It's going to be interesting to see how they do it. Uh, the Art Museum, you can see it a little bit more. It's a lot bigger space. They're going to reserve tickets, too, even though those are free, and limit people to no more than 500 a day. To start. Yeah. To start. They, you know, for the art museum, that all makes sense. It's free. It, the, the, the money is paid through endowments and memberships and things like that. The Rock Hall, it's a little different. They make their they make a good bit of their their revenue, their operating revenue off of ticket sales. So if they start limiting the capacity, you have to wonder what's the break even point. I mean, they were going to have a whole summer of outdoor concerts. It sounds like that's off. Um, it, it's just, it's going to be a little bit more challenging, I think, for a museum that needs the money. What was interesting about this is they both talked to us about how they're part of the governor's work group, which has not announced what's happening, but the museums are out there saying, yeah, here's our plan. So we're learning more from the individual museums than we are from the governor's office about his work group. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see what this translates in for other museums. I guess there's a minimum of 113 square feet per person for attendance. That's the guideline recommended by the Association of Art Museum Directors. So that's one guideline we know, but there are going to be a lot of different um, museums that have to come up with plans. Well, and sadly, one of the best parts of the Rock Hall right now is the garage where anybody with no musical ability, people like me, can walk in, strap on a Fender or Gibson guitar, and within about five minutes, be actually playing a song. Because of the way that's designed, uh, Greg Harris has said they're going to keep that closed at the beginning unless they can find it, figure out a way to keep it safe. So that's too bad. But they still have the Play It Loud exhibit, which if people haven't seen, it's the iconic instruments of all the icons of rock over the years it's it's a cool thing to see they're going to extend it and and we give you something to do because we've all been locked in our houses so good news from the museums it's this week in the cle all right guys another uh, another packed podcast we didn't get to all the issues we wanted to but that's better than running short thank you uh laura thank you chris thanks to everybody for listening this week in the cle we'll be back tomorrow <laughs> <laughs>